right. Well, Rick and Joanne were a blessing at our church for all those years. They continue to be a blessing. And uh, I hated to see them go. And, uh, but then when they did, they became instrumental in becoming part of the staff at Karis. And now to see the church they've started and to carry on the gospel. And so all the souls I saw at the church, you're now going out, you're winning souls. And the souls you're seeing here, they're going out and winning souls. Did you ever stop to think about this? I thought we would receive our rewards in heaven all at one time. I think they're going to be spread out for centuries as more people get saved from the people that started and from the people that started from them, under them. And you just keep, God will come up, here's some more. And here's some more. And this is what God will be doing for us as more and more people receive Jesus. And really, you have no idea of where it all started. He talked about grand churches. I've gone to churches, young men taking it, and I said, you know, how did you know about me? They said, because the pastor that turned it over to me came out of your church. And so I've studied the books, and I know it, so I've invited you to come. And that's the way it happens. It's just, you know, the people you lead to the Lord lead others to the Lord. Aren't you glad God's got a perfect memory of who started it all? Yeah. Of course, it started with Jesus. And then it started in the Old Testament with just the appearance of the Lord back then. Salvation has never changed. It's always been in the same person. But I'm so glad we live in the church age because this is a better time period than any so far. Say, so, Oh, yeah, but the world's all topsy-turvy. But God hasn't lost his balance. God hasn't lost his word. He's not in heaven, you know, run, wringing his hands going, what are we going to do? He's got the whole thing laid out. And guess what? I've read the end of the book. We win. Amen. Amen. It's like watching a football game and you see the end of it and all your friends come over because they had to work. And so they say, don't tell us the end. So they watch a DVR version of it. And you're sitting there so calm and collected while they're screaming and yelling. But you know how it ends. You know how it ends. So if you go to the Bible, just DVR and go to the book of Revelation toward the end and go, oh, we win and come back to where you are right now. So that's the good thing. So again, great to be here. I've got some books out there. Uh, if you know a pastor that's just taking a church, I've got called God's Word to Pastors. I've had it out for years. I've just gone back and redone it, added some more to it. But again, it's just, just, just practical knowledge for pastors and uh, those who are in church leadership. So if you know someone like that, or if you're here today and you have church leadership, and you're part of it, then that book is for you. And then I have a class, in fact, I'm teaching it this upcoming week called Theology Simplified. I love to take complicated things and make them simple. Words that people fear and make them find out it's not fearful at all. So out of this, I've got eight things on here, and uh, propitiation is one of my favorite. The Rolling Stones sang about it, I can't get no propitiation. <laughs> the word just means satisfaction, that's all it means. And when Jesus finished his work at the cross for the first time ever, God was satisfied. In the Old Testament, he was appeased. All he did was at the end of every sacrifice go, yes, but still not what I want. When Jesus arose from the dead, Jesus said, that's it. No more sacrifices. It's all over. And he was satisfied on that day. So that's just one of the eight different names in there, different, uh, the, uh, different uh, uh, doctrines that are explained in there. So I know it'll be a great blessing to you. And uh, anyway, great to be here today. I'll open, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews the fifth chapter. And this whole thing came, the teaching on this came because in August, my wife and I both got COVID at the same time. And, you know, when we did, uh, she got it. And so I went with her to get checked out. And they said, you better get checked out too. So I made an appointment. <clears throat> A couple of days later, I came back and I had it too, but I didn't think I would. You know, I'm one of those, bless God, I'm healed. It'll die when it touches my body. It will not. And all the different things I confessed and believed, and then I still got COVID. It lasted six weeks with her, three, uh, pardon me, three weeks with her, six weeks with me. And uh, by the time we got to the end of it, we both made comment 
at the end of it, that wasn't so bad. We expected worse. It was just, you know, we had some bad days that we didn't feel real good and days that we felt better. And overall, I mean, we've had flu that was worse than that. So we were just commenting on that, but I still, I couldn't get it off my mind. Father, I thought I was healed. You told me I'm healed. I believed I'm healed all these years. And so I really, really got down to the word of God. I want to look at the scriptures again and find out what the scriptures had to say. And God brought me to some very interesting things I'm going to share today. I would say this is the first time I preached it, but the first service was the first time I've ever preached it. So you guys get in on it second, and all the mistakes I made in first service, I'll probably make them again in this service, but I'll try my best not to make them in this service. But uh, I want you to turn with me to he uh, Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to take up a segment of scripture that is highly misunderstood, highly mistranslated, highly misapplied, and uh, I came out of a Pentecostal background called Pentecostal Grace. You've never heard of it. We were not a denomination. We were a fellowship of churches. In fact, we had one church in Denver, and, uh, but a few spread out through Oklahoma, Kansas, Arkansas, a few other states. But we were a group of Pentecostal churches, a fellowship, and we believed in the grace of God. We called ourselves Pentecostal Grace. If you guys know anything about Pentecostal churches, they are not much on the grace of God. We were like weirdos, you know. They didn't want near us. They didn't want to talk to us. We even believed in eternal security. Once you're saved, you're always saved. That's what we believe. We proclaimed it and all that. And then they thought we were even weirder at that time when we said that. But I was never raised around legalism. My mom and dad owned a television when all the denominations called them televisions. And, you know, and uh, my mom and dad would go to movies. That was, that was taboo with most everybody. My mom didn't think there's anything wrong with dancing. And so I danced, you know, when I went to my uh, high school prom. And so things like that. But the things we did, I just never thought about the fact of legalism. It just never crossed my mind. And, uh, but anyway, when I went to college, uh, there was no Pentecostal grace churches in this little town where this junior college was where I went. So I looked for the nearest church and, and that I thought would be good. It was an Assembly of God church. And I did find this out that Pentecostal, especially Assembly of God churches in small towns were usually more legalistic than those in big towns, in big cities. So I got there, and I had never seen legalism like this church had it. At the end of the service, the pastor would literally dangle everybody over hell for the horrible week they must have had, how you must have missed it here and done this. And then at the end of that, give an invitation for everybody to come down, and all the people would come running down, not to repent of the sin, but to get saved again because they thought they'd lost their salvation. And I thought, is that as easy as it is to lose your salvation? And so I didn't, I, so anyway, I stuck it out there, you know, and I, I couldn't believe the things that he would preach against and dangle over the people's heads. So anyway, I went out with a young girl in, this, in the church just for some dates and stuff. And so when I first started dating her, you know, I said, would you like to go to the basketball game? She said, no, the cheerleaders wear short skirts. I said, okay, the football game's out then, I guess, so we're not going to go to the football game. I said, would you like to go bowling? She said, no, they serve beer in the bowling alley. And she said, besides, pastor has asked us, what would you do where you are if Jesus came? I said, let go of the ball. <laughs> I couldn't understand all this stuff. Why all this? You know, and finally, all we could do was go to the Sonic drive-in, and they had boy car hops on roller skates. Anybody remember those days? Okay, and so that's about all we could do. There's not much else to do. So again, I was just amazed at that because I'd never seen anybody make salvation so easy to lose. And literally he said, if you ever go to bed at night and you don't confess your sins, you, if you die during the night, you go to hell. 
So you better make sure before you go to sleep, you wipe out all that stuff before the Lord. And so, again, I'd never understood it. But when I talk to people about the grace of God, especially on salvation, they always bring me to this verse. And I sweated over it for a number of years until one day I was studying with a good author and took me through it in the Greek and I saw what was being said. So let's take a look here beginning in Hebrews chapter 5. And really the text that most people start with is, is chapter 6. Can anybody tell me what's the first word of chapter 6? Therefore. therefore. Do we start sentences with therefore? What if I walked in today and said, therefore? <laughs> you think something's wrong because therefore ties two thoughts together. Therefore says, we've said this, now we're going to conclude with this. That's what therefore means. So anyway, I saw, I saw therefore and went back a few and found out that the whole context starts in chapter 5 and verse 12. And it says here, for though by this time you should be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and have come to need milk and not solid food. The problem with the Hebrews was not that they weren't saved, they were carnal. They were already born again, but they weren't living for the Lord, and they hadn't lived for the Lord so much So for so long a time, they were actually sliding backwards. We call this in the Old Testament backsliders. In the New Testament, they're just carnal Christians. And the longer you stay carnal, the more carnal you become. But what he's saying is, I've come to you before, and by you were teaching people. You had excellent, and I come now, and you need somebody to teach you all over again the fundamentals of the Word of God. I had a pastor friend up in um, Akron, Ohio, when I first was teaching at Ramah, and I went up there, and he had me come to the church and speak. And wonderful guy, and I, we just hit it off immediately because of his love for the Word. And so later on, I went back home, but I found out later, during the time I'd even been up there, he was having affairs with five women in the church. And his wife had just found out about it, was crushed about it, all of this. Well, instead of getting back right with God and white with his wife, he snuck in in the middle of the night with a semi-trailer, emptied everything in the church into that semi-trailer and stole everything. They came, they came the next Sunday for church. He wasn't there, but not only that, their chairs weren't there. The PA system wasn't there. Nothing was there, and the church couldn't believe it, and he drove it all off to Florida and sold all of it so he and his, his girlfriend could have you know, money to live on. Stole it. And, you know, and so I didn't hear from him. Nobody heard from him for a long time, and I guess it was about two to three years later, I got a phone call, and he called me and said, he gave me his name, and I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm in Florida. I said, what's going on? He said, well, he said, uh, I was, I, he said I've been selling cosmetics, uh, you know, as a distributor. And he said, and I just, I'm miserable. I'm just miserable. That woman I ran off down here with, she left me. I'm all by myself. He said, and I, I went and I was going through the, the um, uh, closet the other day, and I found my Bible back there. I pulled it out, and he said there was notes all in it. He said, you know what? I don't even know what those notes mean now. He had come to a place where he didn't even know what he used to know and need to be taught all over again, the principles of the word of God. Was he saved? Yes, but he was miserable. Some of the most miserable people on earth are not sinners. They're carnal Christians living for themselves. And so, uh, listen, I, I, I say this, and I, I say it with fear and trembling because some people get mad at me. Only Christians can out-sin sinners. Thank you. Only a Christian can be worse than an infidel. It's in the Bible. It can happen. And I've met them. I've counseled with them. I wanted to kick them out of my office. Wish I had a gun in my desk, but I didn't at the time. So just a few pastoral confessions. Anyway, 
he was, and he was so down and so, you know, all this. And so, uh, anyway, I said, uh, well, you know, you can come back. He says, I'm, I don't know. I'm afraid to. He says, I'm so far gone. I'm not sure God even loves me anymore. He'd lost all this stuff. And anyway, he told me at the end of the con- at the end before he hung up, and I've got cancer. He died three months later of cancer. God didn't kill him. God didn't kill him. His carnality opened up the door for Satan. And, you know, God wants to protect you in these situations, but he had opened the door up for that. And that was an example of this right here. The Corinthians were carnal too. In fact, two churches, Paul chided them for their carnality, was the Hebrews here and the Corinthians. But the Corinthians never grew up. They got born again and just sat down. They never, and they never gave up their sinning and all this other stuff. And Paul had to just chew them out in chapter 3. Here in this one, he says, you're different though. You did grow up. You did understand the word. You did learn. And somewhere along the line, you quit. And now you've come back to a point where you need to be taught all over again the fundamentals, the foundational principles of the word of God. Go with me here to verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This is almost verbatim what he told the Corinthians about eating meat or eating or drinking milk and the fact that they need to have, uh, they needed to grow up and come to a full age. Saying all of that, we now come to chapter 6, verse 1, therefore. All this stuff, now therefore. Therefore literally connects a previous thought with a conclusion. He says, let's come to the conclusion of it now. Here's the problem. Here's the answer. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on into perfection. Perfection is maturity. He said, you guys should have your eyes on maturity. And you need to quit going back over this stuff. Get back into it. Learn to get back. Let's get going and not have to go back and cover the fundamentals again. He says here again, uh, let us go on into maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Underline that. You know what he's saying here? Not laying again the foundation of repentance and dead works and faith toward God is salvation. Repentance of your lifestyle and acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He said that's not the issue. You need to go on from there. Now look with me at the next verse. He goes on to say here in verse... uh, Verse 2 of the doctrine of baptisms. About baptisms here is the new birth is a baptism. There's water baptism. Uh, there's baptism in the Holy Spirit of the laying on of hands. That's for healing or, or setting someone to a ministry. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment deals with the coming of Jesus Christ. And then verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. Verse 4, for it is impossible, if you have a Bible you can mark up, would you just put a little comma after impossible? No author does this, no Bible does it, but I do it for myself. The reason why is, when he says here, it is impossible, he doesn't resume this thought till, till verse 6. In the meantime, he sticks some stuff in between. So verse 4 says this, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. How many times can you be enlightened? Once. This is the new birth. You can only get enlightened toward Jesus one time. He says, who were once enlightened, then you partake of the heavenly gift. That's the new birth. You have the new birth. You become partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's his indwelling. That's his infilling. That's his companionship, partakers of the Holy Spirit. You've tasted the good word of God. You say, oh, see there, they really didn't get in the word. They just tasted it. Folks, when you first get born again, you just taste it. From then on, you should start, you know, growing in milk and growing in food. 
He goes on to say here, you've tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away. To renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. I want to go back to verse 4 again. For it is impossible, jump down to verse 6, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. It's saying here in this verse of scripture, it almost sounds like he's simply saying that if you ever sin, you cannot come back. And that's where many denominations have picked up on this. It sounds like he's saying here, if you sin, you cannot come back. That's not what he's saying. And here's what some people say. Yeah, but if you, if you just obstinately look at God and say, I don't want you anymore, and turn around and walk off, that's what this is talking about. No, I'm going to make this actually harder before I make it simpler. When it says in verse 6, it says, if they fall away, the Greek word is paraptoba. And the Greek word means to stumble or to deviate. To stumble or deviate. So here's what it's saying. If a person is saved and they stumble, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That's terrible, isn't it? How many of you have stumbled before? Can I see your hand? How many of you stumbled a bunch in one day? Can I see your hand? How many of you have deviated off the path in some time in your life? Can I see your hand? Well... Thank God you're coming to church, but I don't think you're going to heaven after this verse of Scripture. (laughs) That is not what it's saying. Let me tell you what it's saying here. It says here again in verse 6, If they shall stumble or deviate to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. You know what this verse is saying? If you're walking down the road and you deviate and get off the path and get all discouraged, don't go back here and try to get saved again. Don't crucify him again. He only died one time. What's the verse saying? If you deviate and stumble off the path, get back on the path and keep on going. That's the whole thing. He wasn't telling them you need to go back and get saved again. He said you need to go and recover the fundamentals after that of the elementary things you've forgotten, but you need to keep on going. Because why? Notice what he said in verse 4 before all this began. It is impossible to put Jesus on the cross again. It's impossible to get saved again. You're already saved. All right, the difference we're talking about here basically comes down to this, and I know your pastor's probably taught on this, the difference between relationship with God and fellowship with God. All right, relationship comes when you're born again. You have a relationship with your children. Why? You birthed them. All right, but how do you know, how many can vouch for this? You love all your children the same. Oh, come on, this is not a trick question. You love all your children the same, all right? Can I, okay, thank you. But let me ask you this. Are you happier with some than another on certain days? Do some please you more than others on certain days? I know I love my kids, but there's one I like, you know? And you can get into that, you know? And it comes back to this, how they act and how they obey and things like that determine a lot. Think about this. God loves us all the same, but he doesn't like us all the same. I'm sorry, don't get mad at me. I'm just saying that's right. In fact, listen to what, G- what God said about Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God loves you, but is he pleased with you? On top of that, is he well pleased with you? Well, ple- the pleasure of God is when we do the things he asks us to do. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We must believe that he is and a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So when you diligently seek God, he becomes more happy with you. He becomes more, again, pleased with you. And that's what's being talked about in this case. So again, that 
pastor of that assembly of God church was basically violating this verse of scripture because if anybody had sinned, they don't know you to go back and get saved again because you can't do that. That's like your child coming to you and say, Dad, I really blew it. Uh, somehow could you kill me and then birth me again? You know what? It's impossible. Once they're born in this life, you can't rebirth a child. Once you're born into God's family, you can't, he can't rebirth you. But what happens is we deviate off the path. Why? Because after we're born again, there's a growth process, and this is a trail that we're going down. This is a path we are going down, and God simply wants you to know at the end of this path is what I'm really looking for, and that's full maturity. The trip that we are on with Jesus is get born again first of all, and the next part is just grow up and keep maturing, maturing, maturing. The more we understand the word, the more mature we get. And listen, it comes back to this. What the world needs is not just literally more converts. They need more disciples. The world needs stable Christians. One of my favorite verses, Isaiah 33, 6, wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of your times. How do you get stable? By wisdom and knowledge of the word of God. Jesus said to those Jews who just believed in him, now if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Folks, he said, if you continue in my word, when you get born again, you just started in the word. That's the tasting of the word of God. From then on, you need to make meals out of it. And the more you study it and live by it, you become stable Christians. The world needs stable Christians. The world is filled today with unstable Christians. And the world doesn't even know if they're born again or not. Because the lives they live in, the testimony, God has not only put you in this world to be born again, but to live like it. Amen. Okay? To live like you're a child of God. Not to be questioned because nobody can tell you're a child of God. It ought to stand out in your daily life. Did you, here's something. Did you know that the word disciples was not, I'm mean, a part of, did you know the word Christian was not attached to people that were just saved? Chapter 11 of Acts, they were first, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, not the converts. We call people who just get saved Christians. No, Christian was a term meaning little Jesus. Now they look like it, act like it. He's a little Jesus. And so the word Christian actually was a word entitled for a, not only just a believer, but a disciple in the Lord Jesus Christ. What the world needs is more disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who live it and people look at them and say, you know what? He is a, he's a Christian. That guy is really a Christian. Because he not only, you know, admits it, he lives it every day. Without even thinking about it, he acts like Jesus does. That's what we're looking for. So the issue is don't try to return to the point of salvation when you sin because that's impossible. You get sidetracked. The issue is get back on track. What brings you back on track is simply 1 John 1, 9 or all the verses that teach the same thing. Uh, Acts chapter 16 uh, Paul is speaking there to the Philippian jailer, and the Philippian jailer said, What must I do to be saved? He said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Well, then after that, the issue is no longer getting saved. The issue is, are you in fellowship or not? And that comes that as you sin, you confess that sin to the Lord. It's interesting, the word confess does not mean to name it. We often think it means to name all the sins that you have done. Think about the sins that David had committed. Let's just talk about Bathsheba for a moment. He saw Bathsheba bathing. He was already married. She was married. I like to think of it this way. There were no two people more uh, that it was more against God's will for them to get married than those two. All right? There's no, I can't think of a couple in the Bible that was worse for anybody because he was already married. She was married. She was happily married. He had five wives at the time. I won't get into that. But anyway, he had five <laughs> wives. And 
Anyway, he saw her, brought her into the house. What was she going to say? The king asked her to go to bed. I mean, this is the king asking. What, what if I say no? Then he you know, turns against me and fires my husband, who's one of the most valued in the battle. She went all this in her mind, and so she went to bed. With, then she got pregnant. Then he killed her husband to get her, moved her into the house. They had an illegitimate baby that died. I mean, this went on for over a year's time. All this, and whenever Nathan the prophet came to him, because it says in there, David thought nobody knew it, but the end of chapter 11 says, the thing that David did displeased the Lord. You can't hide it from God. And the Lord saw it. So in that next chapter, I mean, whenever Nathan the prophet came in, told him the entire story, and David saw it, he just suddenly said, I have sinned against the Lord. Didn't name his sins. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that amazing? said, well, I think we should name them all. The trouble is you probably couldn't remember them all. You start to name them, God said, you forgot that one, and you forgot that one. So it's just better just to categorize them. And you know what the word confess means to admit it? Just admit it. I've sinned against the Lord. Okay, your sins are forgiven. That's the simplicity of 1 John 1, 9. When you miss it, just say, Lord, I blew it, and get back in there and keep on going. That's all he's looking for is for you to admit it. That's what we're talking about here in these verses of Scripture. So it comes back to it again. This teaching is how to return to fellowship, not how to get saved again, because it's impossible to be saved again. So you don't try to return to the point of salvation when you sin, because that's impossible. You just got sidetracked, so now it's time to come back. The pictures in the Bible of fellowship and relationship are just incredible. Uh, relationship comes when you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then if you break fellowship with him, then you confess that individual sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive you of that sin, and it's seen throughout the Word of God. Some of the best examples, Jesus gave one one time in chapter 6 of John, where he was with his disciples, and he started to wash their feet. And Peter said, I mean, the, he was starting to wash the feet, and Peter, when he got to Peter, Peter said, no, 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 wash my head, wash my face, wash my body. In other words, give me a full bath. And Jesus said, if you've had a full bath, you don't have to take a bath again. You just need your feet washed. Foot washing is a type of 1 John 1, 9, confessing your sins to the Lord. This came out of an Old Testament example where the priests got up in the morning and before they went to officiate in the tabernacle or in the temple, they completely took a bath put on their robes, put on everything, and then walked over to the tabernacle or the temple, but their feet got dirty because the feet came in contact with the dirt. The feet came in contact with the earth. The feet came in contact with the world. And the feet got dirty. But what you got there, all you did was you took your shoes off and you stepped into a laver, a brazen laver, a brass laver of water, and you washed your feet off. We do this at the beach. You've been out in the ocean, you come back in, your feet get all sandy, but you go up there and you spray those feet off, you know. That's a type of 1 John 1, 9. You don't need to take a bath again. You just need to wash your feet. And so uh, that's the type that's seen there. The next example we have is of the Red Sea and the Jordan River. And so the Red Sea and the Jordan River are this. Uh, the Red Sea stands for salvation, and the Jordan River, after they had been in the wilderness for 40 years, was a type of fellowship allowing them to go into the Promised Land. And so they crossed the Red Sea. You could only go one direction. Nobody could go back through the Red Sea again. The Red Sea, even the color, is a type of the blood of Jesus Christ. And as they stood there, there's no way out. It was absolutely impossible. An ocean, when it says the Red Sea, folks, a sea is an ocean. 
Okay, it's out there in front of them. On this side and on this side is mountains, and behind them is the army of Egypt about to attack them, and there was no way out. I love what Moses said. Stand still and watch the deliverance of the Lord. They stood there, and all of a sudden, Moses just lifted up that rod into the air, and the water parted. Oh, incredible. The water parted in two directions. The water was like this, and it split right down the middle and went in two directions. It's a type of when you get saved. God opens up a door for you, and the waters part in two directions. No sin past, no sin present, no sin future will keep you out of heaven. You're covered. But it's different with the Jordan River. The Jordan River was a running river, running you know, from one direction. And when the children of Israel got there, no longer was it stand still and watch the deliverance of the Lord. If you as a Christian sin, don't stand still and do nothing. Too many Christians try that. No, when you do something wrong, it's time for you to do something. And what happened was the priest went and put their foot on the river. The foot. The part that gets dirty. The part that's been out in the wilderness for 40 years. The part that got dirty, touching the world, touching the earth. And so they went there. And as soon as it touched like this, it backed up in one direction, past. It suddenly stopped and went all the way back. And they watched it go all the way back. And it went all the way back to a city called Adam. Isn't that incredible? God, the analogies of the word of God are just incredible. You know what that's simply saying? No sin from you back to Adam can block this you coming back into fellowship. Oh, but, I, you know, my mom and dad sinned. Your mom and dad can't stop you. Your grandparents, your great-grandparents, all the way back, all the way back to the original sin of Adam, you are taken care of. But I want you to notice it was back. That means tomorrow's sin is not covered today. If you sin tomorrow, you ask him on that day. But salvation is once and for all, parts in two directions, and you are saved, you are saved, you are saved. Hallelujah. Just good stuff. Praise the name of Jesus. So that's the types we have here again of those two. We also have the shedding and sprinkling of blood. The shedding of blood is a type of salvation, and the sprinkling of blood is a type of coming back into fellowship with God or confessing your sins. Um, the shedding of blood was what happened at the Passover. And the shedding of blood, the, the blood was put into basins. It was, it was in bowls. And the blood that came from the lamb was literally put into bowls. But then the Lord asked him before the, before the uh, death angel came over and headed toward, he said, sprinkle it over the doorpost. So they took it and sprinkled it. What we have in each case is a lot and a little. To take a bath is a lot of water. To wash your feet is a little water. The Red Sea was a lot of water. The Jordan River was a little water compared to that. But the shedding of blood is a lot of blood, and the sprinkling of blood is a little bit of blood. All I'm saying is it took everything God had to save you, but after that it just takes a sprinkle to bring you back into fellowship with him. And it was spread over the door. Isn't that wonderful over the door? That wasn't to keep God out. It was to keep the devil out. Amen. Amen. You keep that. But if you ever fail to confess your sins, you just open up the door and say, Satan, come right on in and mess my life up. But when you sprinkle that blood over there, a little drop will scare off the devil and all of hell. Just good stuff. Hallelujah. I feel like I could preach a sermon. Um, But anyway, what we have here again. Uh, On the cross also, Jesus not only died for our sins, he also died for two other things. He died for finances. That's brought out in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 
that when Jesus went to the cross, he also became poor for us on the cross, that we through his poverty might be rich. Now, I'll qualify that. That doesn't mean giant cars and tons of houses and all that. Kind. That's not what we're talking about. It's just plenty of prosperity, and the purpose of prosperity is to spread the gospel. That's the highest purpose of it. Now, you can have the leftovers, but again, the main thing it's done is for the preaching of the gospel. The next thing is your health. Divine healing came by way of the cross. Isaiah 53 in verse 4, himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. That's on the cross. And also Matthew 8, 16 and 17, Jesus healed and cast out devils that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs, the third chapter. Proverbs chapter 3, look at verse 15 and 16. Here speaking of wisdom, wisdom is the word of God. It's what's important after you are saved to bring you into maturity, to bring you into that disciple that God wants. And so in Proverbs 3, 15 and 16, it says, She, this is wisdom, she, this is the word of God, is more precious than rubies, and all the things that you may desire cannot be compared with her. Length of days is in her right hand, and her left hand riches and honor. Jesus, type in, Jesus Christ in salvation with the cross for us and offered us the wisdom of heaven. But wisdom is like a beautiful woman. She comes complete with two hands. In the left hand is riches and honor. In the right hand is length of days. I ask you in the Bible, which is the prominent hand found throughout the word of God? Right hand. For you left-handed people, God's not mad at you, okay? So don't blame him for that, okay? No. And we're seated at the right hand of the Father. So in other words, it's saying that in the left hand is riches and honor. In the right hand is length of days. At the first time I read that, I thought, no, no, that's backwards. The riches should be in the right hand. And the length of days in the left hand. No, no, I thought about that later. You know why length of, uh, you know why uh, longevity and healing is in the right hand? So you can live long enough to enjoy the left hand. What good is riches if you're going to die tomorrow, okay? It's nice to have in the prominent hand length of days and in the left hand riches and honor. But these two things come. Now, I ask you, this is again what he died for. He died for salvation. That's the heart of the issue. The heart of what he went to the cross for is salvation, the most important thing. So don't lift up money to the same level as salvation. Don't lift up health to the same thing as salvation because both hands are temporary. Prosperity only works while you're here. Long life only lives while you're here. And one day you're going to be gone, whether you live to be 105 or 35. The point of it is, did you accept Jesus? Did you live for him? Because in eternity, none of that's going to matter. But simply saying, God wants you to live long. With long life, he'll satisfy you. But long life might be 70, 80 years, according to the Psalms. It still comes back to it that these two, healing and finances, are not the main reason Jesus died. It is for salvation. Why the hands? Why the hands? Because they represent work. Manos in Spanish. Manual comes from that word. Manual labor. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, and this is my favorite thing for you to tell your 16 or 17 year old kid, let him that stole steal no more. 
but rather let him labor, working with his hands. That's where jobs begin, flipping burgers, pushing brooms. That's where it starts with the hands. And so it simply comes back to it. What he died for was to get you saved, but he also filled your hands with the work that's needed to get it done. Because to spread the gospel, you need health. If you're in a bed, you can't get up and go preach. He said, go into all the world. See, most people want, most Christians want to get healed so they can go back out and see movies again and go eat with their kids. Have you ever thought about using your healing to win souls? When Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, it said she stood up and served them. What a great thing to do. Make that your testimony. When I can stand up again, I'm going to serve people. Why money? Because money is part of the Great Commission. You say, what do you mean by that? If the, if the command is, you know, to go into all the world, Rick, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and I have a different call, I'm staying in a church, and he's going to go to the evangelistic field. The point of it is, he told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but the command wasn't for you, it was for ye. It was given to everybody because not one person can go into all the world. It's impossible, but all of us can. We go into our world and somehow we all take care of the world. But the point of it is, what Rick is doing really is part of my heart. So you know what I do? I can give him money. And my money goes and does... (laughs) Money, money goes and does what I want to do. Because listen, once you send out money, it's you going. Money doesn't take any time off, works 24 hours a day, never takes a vacation, doesn't demand sick pay. It just keeps on working and keeps on working. And that's why he died and gave both. But listen, the whole point of it is, is my health should be used to win souls and my money should be used to win souls. That's the point of it. It's he that gives you power to get wealth in order that his covenant may be established, which is in the earth. It's all for spreading the gospel. So we come back to it again. And again, that was Proverbs chapter 3. Look at 3 John 2. We're getting close to the end. The first end. No. I have. 3 John 2. I'm sure you've read this before. If Jesus on the cross died for our salvation and also died for our uh, financial needs to be met and for healing, then it comes back to this, that the course we are on in 3 John 2 includes our finances and includes our health, as well as our discipleship. 3 John 2, beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health as your soul prospers. The word prosper is mentioned once, then prosperous is mentioned, but both are the same word. The word for prosper and the word for prosperous is the word euodos, euodos. E-U is good or prosperous, and odos means a road or a journey. And what he said was, I wish above all things that you would have a prosperous journey and be in health as your soul has a prosperous journey. There's been people have taken that and say, see, that's not talking about money for us. Yes, it is. Because listen to this. Everything that Jesus died for on the cross, he doesn't dump out on us at one time. It's a progressive thing. I am saved. Yes, I am. Born again. Yes, I am. But you know what? Daily, I keep maturing in that day after day after day. And the day I deviate off the path, I don't have to go back here and get saved again. No, I just get back on the track and keep on going. And here's something good that will help you in the Christian life. Quit griping over how far you've got to go. Rejoice over how far you've come. Yes. 
three things, salvation, financial, and health. Let me tell you what salvation is, first of all. Jesus died on the cross and made us the righteousness of God in him. You know how God sees me? Without sin. I see the sin on this side. That's why I want to get rid of it, confess it, bring it to the Lord. But the point of it is, if God sees me as righteous, then the goal of my course, the goal of this good, prosperous journey is I'm heading every day toward a day where I never sin again. Amen. I'm not going to make it, but I can get close. <laughs> Jesus even said, remember when the man that you know, was healed and he said, go and sin no more? lest the worst thing come on you. Remember when he said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more? I'm sure they went, okay, and walked out the door. How do you think they probably sinned again? I do. But you know what? I think every time we sin and we bring it to the Lord, he says, good, go and sin no more. He sets that goal back. It reinforces that goal in front of me. I want you to come to a time where you never sin again. Now, I believe the only one that possibly did that was Jesus. Nobody else has done it since. But you know what my goal is? To come to a point in life where I have to stop and remember. When's the last time I sinned? Amen. Amen? Yeah, Jesse DePlantis was in a meeting not too long ago, and I heard he talk about he and his wife. And he said that uh, one day they were talking, they just heard a message on sin and how to handle sin. He says, honey, when's the last time we sinned? She said, I don't know. Never thought about it. He said, well, let's think about it. So they thought, they said, I can't remember the last time we sinned. He said, well, that's good. How about we journal this, and next time we sin, let's write it down. So we'll know, you know. And she said, okay. So anyway, long time later, months later, they were going to a meeting. They were driving down the freeway. Jesse was driving. She was on the other side of the car. And as they're going down the freeway, a lady entered in on an entrance ramp and kept coming on over and coming on. And she came right up. She was about to run into their car. And, you know, Kathy, his wife, looked out the window, and that lady was on the phone, on her cell phone. And, she, and anyway, when she looked over, she said, what the hell? <laughs> and Jesse said, yeah, what the hell? <laughs> and they looked at each other, and he said, pull that journal out. Write it down there. We just sinned. <laughs> and anyway, that's not the point of the story either. They drove on to the church where he was going to speak, and the lady was right behind him. They pulled off. She pulled off. They pulled into the church parking lot. She pulled into the church parking lot. <laughs> She got out and said, were you the ones that almost ran off the road? And they said, yes. She said, oh, I'm so sorry, but my sister called me on the phone. My mother just had a heart attack, and I was talking to her on that. So they felt bad about that. But anyway, I just thought it was interesting. Think about this. I know there's times you sin, but instead of getting all down in the dumps about the fact that you sin, stop and think about it for a minute. When's the last time I've really gained on this thing? Father, it's working in me. Your word is working in me. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. And Lord, it's really been working for a long time, but this one kind of got the best of me. Don't look at me so pious. You've all had words come out of your mouth that you figure, where did that come from? I have. So anyway, say, so what words have you said? None of your business. Um, let's go on. All right. It comes back to this. Once you get born again, salvation is not a word that's brought back up again. Holiness is now brought up. Holiness is mature salvation. Prosperity is, is mentioned instead of your financial need. It's not a financial need once you're born again. Now it's prosperity, and that's your trip. That's the thing you're head down. And health is literally mature healing. It's not a fact that you're looking for healing again. You're going to walk in divine health. And that's why he said in this verse of scripture, Beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. We're right back to the two hands of wisdom. And he said, it's part of what Jesus did for you on the cross. 
And anyway, what he said was it's a prosperous trip. We grow in everything. We grow in righteousness. We grow in our daily righteousness. I am righteous, but I grow in daily in it, in my walk. And then again, daily, I'm increasing in my walk in health and increasing in my life in prosperity with the Lord. So let's come down to a closing verse of scripture. I know what you're probably thinking. It's great that we have 1 John 1, 9. It's great that we have verses in the Bible about repentance. And I come to the Lord and I confess it. And he's faithful and just to forgive me. But that's sin. I sure wish there was a verse in the Bible about healing. Wouldn't it be nice to have a 1 John 1, 9 for healing? That when I get all down to the fact that I got sick and like me, I, was, I was, couldn't believe it. I was really upset about it. I got sick. Here I am having COVID. I thought for sure... I thought for sure it'd die when it touches this body and I got COVID. And then again, after it was all over, we noted, you know, but I stopped to think about it. Man, wouldn't it be nice if we had a reprieve on that when we get sick that we just confess it, it's over and it's gone, but I couldn't find anything on it. But then I did. There is a 1 John 1, 9 for healing. What's that? Is there any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. In fact, look at that verse of scripture. I didn't quote it this way in the last service, but let's take a look at it. Here's something you get that they didn't. So James chapter 5, look at verse 14 and 15. Is anyone sick among you? The word sick is astheneo. It's actually the word for sickness. And so that's what's saying. Is there anyone sick among you? He's speaking to the congregation. Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. Here we have the word sick again. Is anyone among you sick? Verse 14. Now in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the sick, but this time we have a different word. The word this time is terribly translated. See, it's not sick at all. The word means weak and weary. This person's discouraged. I pray for myself, but I don't think my prayers would, it wouldn't get off the ceiling. I wouldn't get it out of the room. I don't think I'm living for God, and I got sick. I'm so discouraged. I pray, and it seems like I can't get any answers to it. I just wish there was some way out of this thing. The Lord says, fine, go to church and find some elders in the church and have them pray over you. And here's the point. You don't even have to come in faith. The prayer of faith is prayed for by the elders of the church, and their faith will get you healed. Amen. What a wonderful thing. On top of that, listen, you probably have been... In been in this sickness for some time, you're discouraged, you're down, you're about to give up, you're beating yourself up, all the things that you're browbeating yourself over and the Lord's, and probably in that meantime, you've almost given up on God and now you've started sinning. Listen to what else happens. It says the prayer of faith will save the sick and if he's committed any sins, they'll be forgiven. You don't even have to confess your sins. God says, I care about you so much. If you're that far down and you have been beaten up and you're weak and weary, come to church, find somebody in the church, the elders of the church, the leadership of the church, their faith will be prayed over you. Notice this, it says come. It says the prayer of faith has to be for those that are praying for you because you don't have any faith at the moment. The prayer of faith will save the sick, the weak one, the tired one, the weary one. And if they've committed any sins, it shall be forgiven them. Oh, what a wonderful God we serve. Amen. What a wonderful, loving, heavenly Father we serve that would do that for us. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. There's one other story that ties in with this one. There was a sick, paralyzed man that was let down through the tiles of a roof by four men. 
as they led him down, the Lord said he saw their faith. Their faith was not the man on the bed. It was the faith of the four people letting him down into that place. I believe that guy was probably a believer, but he just got so weary and tired and wondered if this thing was ever going to go. He prayed it hadn't seemed to work and was tired and giving up, but four men said, no, no, let us take you. And Jesus healed him on their faith like he'll heal you today on the prayer of the faith of those who are elders in the church. At the end of this sermon, I'll be up here, but I'm going to invite those elders of the church. We're going to anoint you with oil, pray over you, and my, listen, you know what I'm believing for? You're going to walk out of here healed. Or by the time you're home, those symptoms will be gone. You're going to note a miracle in your life and bring it, brings it all back to this. God still cares for me. He still loves me. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for the great things you have done. And Father, we thank you most of all for your love, your kindness, your mercy toward us. And Father, if there is any sick here today that are discouraged and down, you're going to show your power, your love, your grace, and your mercy to them and raise them up. I give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This is from 1 Corinthians 13, 11 and 12. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Now I have become a man. I am done with childish ways and put them aside. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also know. His word is a mirror. He doesn't care how many times you fail. He just cares that you come to him. He wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you to use this sword. This sword is what does the work for you when you focus on it. This is my Bible. It is God's way of speaking to me through God. Directs me, instructs me, corrects me, and comforts me. As I abide in his word, I will grow and mature into the person he created me to be. As I apply his word to my life, I will prosper, be successful in all that I do. God's word works as I work the word. He's waiting for you like a prodigal son. His arms are open for you. Just come to him. Amen. He is so good. He loves you so much. A few years ago, I was invited out to dinner with Pastor Rick and Joanne and Pastor Bob. Um, my wife and I, Jacqueline, we run the youth ministry here. And we went out and sat and ate, and it was a great time. And towards the end of the meal, I asked Pastor Bob, I said, do you have any advice for young ministers, you know, just coming into the ministry? And he looked at me and he said, just chill. <laughs> and I said... I want steps. Come on. <laughs> it's like, don't you have anything deeper than that? Come on, man. Just chill. And I remember, like, actually, like, just since then over the years, it's been such a profound word for us to just chill and just relax and let God do his thing in our lives. And I feel like that's a word for us all today is to just chill. Like, if you're struggling with your salvation because you've sinned and you're agonizing over that stuff you know deep down in your heart God loves you just chill come back to him just it's that simple it's not that difficult right if you're struggling with healing right just chill he loves you perfectly amen if you're struggling in your finances just chill he's got you amen so take it easy just chill all right amen <laughs>